Uh, so just so you know, and just to be clear, we do this back to church uh, Sunday thing, not as a gimmick, not as a bait and switch type deal. Um, we do this, uh, we set aside a Sunday to encourage people and remind people of the value of being together. And sometimes marking a Sunday, like back to church Sunday, helps people re-engage in this. It's also a Sunday we help get to kick off uh, some ministries and let you know what's going on and what God's doing in us and through us and that you can be a part of. Uh, so thank you for inviting those to come back to church. Um, thank you for those who are here for the first time. Uh, and let me just say this. Uh, if you come back next week, you're going to get the exact same thing. So, so we'd love to have you next week as well. You get loved on. Our, our hope here at Grace is to love God and love others well. That's what the purpose of the church is. And that's what our purpose is here at Grace. And I think it's what God's purpose is for in the world. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says this. God's purpose in all this was to use his church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all. But if you know, and if you follow, or you read anything sacred or secular about the church, you know pretty quickly that the church has been having a really tough season. I think we'd agree the church has been losing members at its quickest rate among churches. In fact, just this Friday, the Washington Post put out an article titled, The Great Dechurching uh, Looks at Why People Are Leaving Churches. Now, you can't read the subtitle. The subtitle says this, A new book looks at why millions of Americans left church and what might bring them back. Just on Friday. Jim Davis and Michael Graham uh, came with the sobering conclusion this, is that more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham... Billy Graham Crusades combined. With percentages for each of these, people left in part because their friends weren't there anymore. Attending service or the service times weren't convenient for them. Church scandal, they didn't feel much love in the church, they didn't fit in, they no longer believed they had other priorities. Many other things, locally, historically, that people can and have pointed to as a reason not to be in church. They shake their head at the church. They walk away from the church. And I find people who are looking and longing for people to see what the church is really called to do and if they want to be a part of it. You remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Verse 13, where he says, you are, talking about the church and believers and followers of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? And that's really the question for the church. How can the church become salty again? How do we get it back? And even the deeper question is, do I want to be a part of getting it back? There's no doubt that people are delusioned, they're disheartened, they're dissatisfied, they're disappointed with the church. And, and I hope you know that. If you, if you don't, just here's, here's a challenge for you this week. Go out and ask people what they think about the church. Not Grace Community Church, you're going to get great reviews that way. <clears throat> but go out and ask people what they think about the church. Go to your neighborhoods. Post something on social media. Get an understanding of how people are viewing the church. Uh, on Hilton Head, probably 45,000 full-time residents. My guess is there's less than 10% of people in church this morning. That should tell us something about how even Hilton Head is viewing the church. People seem to be disappointed with the hypocrisy of the church. 
it's not just the theological doctrine things that are are, are disappointing to people. It, it's the violation of our own core values that's disappointing to the people in our culture. People who say one thing and then live out another thing can be a very disappointing place to live. People, too, are concerned about the powerlessness of the church. It's almost like the church is impotent in the midst of all the problems. Because here's what we don't hear. We don't hear the government coming and running to the church, hey, help us with this. Or the school system coming and saying, hey, church, tell us how we handle this. Or the economy. We, we don't have anybody coming to the church. And then you come inside the church and you hear a verse like, the church is the wisdom of God on display. And you think, really? No one's really asking for our wisdom. Another disappointment is that instead of living for the kingdom, the church of God lives like everybody else. No real distinct difference. I read something this week that said, Many in the church live basically lives identical to the world and culture, chasing the same things with some Jesus or church language pasted on top. And the result of all this is that the culture is looking at the church going, Nice try. And the people are just not interested. And those who have lost interest in the church are leaving at rapid rates. And the underlying question is, will the church get its saltiness back in the world? Now, isn't this just a great message for a go back to church Sunday? <laughs> but there's hope. Because I believe as people who really long to see, people in our worlds outside of these walls really long to see the church taking their faith seriously. And God's plan for the church has not changed. And so with God, there's always hope. So we can't give up on the church. And one of the great things about the church that God has done for the church is that the church contains within herself the corrective and prophetic mechanism to both critique the church and call the church back to its purpose. There's many stains and things we could point at and look at as far as the church goes. But there's also, if you read church history, there's also beautiful moments of the church. Seasons where the church was salt and light. that had great commitment and sacrifice. Something that we can still be a part of at this moment in history. One of the scenes of beauty and commitment and sacrifice in history is that of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I recently finished a reading a book on him again, and it was his life and this story, actually, that kind of gave us the title of the message this morning. For those of you who don't know, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and an influential theologian in his culture. Uh, he was alive and doing his most influential work uh, during World War II in the face of Hitler and the Nazi regime. He lived a remarkable, compelling life. He became obsessed. Bonhoeffer became obsessed with the idea of God's presence among his people. And with this in his heart, with this stirring in his heart and mind, Bonhoeffer became so disappointed that the national church began to draw away and compromise the true church. He recognized that God's church was being seduced by the culture. And so he and a few others started a movement called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was to exist as a contrast, a counterculture, another way of witnessing to the fact that Jesus is head of the church 
not the Nazi regime and Hitler. And because of that, became under great and tremendous pressure. People were not able to go to these meetings of the Confessing Church, and if your name was listed, you would be persecuted. Uh, the government cut off funding, so they didn't have any money to spend for the church, and, and eventually they stopped uh, allowing them to meet all together. It's a heartbreaking time for Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church. But in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this, this trial, God gives Bonhoeffer this vision to build a seminary in the midst of the culture. And he started this seminary at a place called Finkenwald, which is a very strategic place. And he brought together this group of people with the idea of creating radical people that follow Jesus. And around this time, he wrote two of his popular books, Life Together and the Cost of Discipleship. If you've not read them, I would encourage you to read them. This book, Life of Discipleship, uh, Life Together, I'm sorry, began circulating, and one of his friends picked up the book. And he comes to Bonhoeffer and he says, listen, Bonhoeffer, I get it. I get the culture. I get everything that's going on. I get the pressures you're going through. But what you're doing is a little radical. It's a little crazy, actually. He tours the seminary of where he's at. And Bonhoeffer, the story goes, puts him in a boat and they sail across the sound. And they get to the other side and they climb a hill. And on top of the hill... Bonhoeffer and his friend look out and they see the Nazi regime with all their tanks, with thousands of troops, with planes, all on this field. And the story goes that Bonhoeffer and his friend have this conversation. And this is how Charles Marsh, the writer of Strange Glory, records it. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary to propose a superior life amongst the Christians if the Nazis were to be defeated. And pointing to the seminary, he said, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that are finding us everywhere. And he got back in the boat, and the story goes, they went back to the seminary in silence. And I just love this image. Here's Bonhoeffer pointing at this little ragged, 30 people at Tops Seminary. Not much funding. Great difficulty and pressure. And then pointing to the Hitler gathering on the other side. And in almost this prophetic way, he says, this, the seminary, must be greater than that. Karl Barth, a theologian who was a member of the Confessing Church, wrote this, The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise, that draws us in. God is setting up through the church a contradiction to the culture and we're to display the wisdom of God in contrast. And so even in a time of our culture right now where people are fleeing and leaving the churches, how is it that this can be greater than that? We're going to start by embracing and securing an answer to who God says the church is this morning. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for this morning. I do thank you for this, this Sunday where we can remember and re-engage the value of being together, your church. God, I pray that you help us this morning 
as we open your word, as we listen to your truth, that your spirit would teach us and help us. God, give us insight and wisdom. Give us answers to application. May we be your church, wisdom on display in the world. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you, beside you, that they would hear from the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 6 from the New Living Translation, says this, And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise and blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Verse 10, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 14, and when I think of this, Paul says, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with the inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is our prayer this morning. This is our posture this morning as we look at the rest of the message. Scripture uses metaphors throughout the New Testament particularly to reveal his passion, to reveal his presence, to reveal what the people of God are to do and his purpose. And the first metaphor I want to look at is the bride, which reveals the passion of God. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And whenever I do pre-marriage counseling, and I do weddings, I've got a couple to do this fall, this passage of scripture, Ephesians 5, always comes up. And I have a couple of weddings that I'm doing, and one of the couples that I'm working with right now, they're so fun and naive. <laughs> but they love each other so much. They're so giddy. And they just say, I just love him so much. I want to be the best for him. And he just says, oh, gosh, I just want to love her so well. And some would say that they are smitten for each other. We don't use that word much, but it's a good word, smitten. And in going through the premarriage counts, when we talk about this passage, we talk about what it looks like to love and respect each other. And apparently, and comparatively, Paul 
writes to the church at Ephesus and said, God considers us, his church, his bride. Now let that sink in just for a minute. Pause for a moment and let the ideas of marriage, a bride and a groom, love, faithfulness, passion, protection, commitment, intimacy, loyalty, trust, all those things about marriage being applied to you, the church, and Jesus. All the purest sense of the words we can think of for marriage, we can apply that in the context of Jesus and his bride, the church. It's a staggering image if you think about it. Frank Viola says this, in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible opens with a woman and a man. In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens with a marriage and ends with a marriage. Your Bible is essentially a love story about marriage. And we have to get comfortable with this language because this is the central understanding about the passion of God he has for his church. God loves us, his bride. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 of God's vision of what happens when he gathers his people and he describes his bride and what he does. So you were adorned with gold and silver, your clothes were refined linen and costly fabric, and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flowers. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. God sees beauty and this great passion for his bride, the church. And now the problem and the truth about this is that, that in this marriage metaphor, there's a gap and there's this thing that we don't always reciprocate the love that God has given to us the same way. We've not loved God like he's loved us. Often we are an unfaithful bride. In the Old Testament, God gave us a picture of this in the book of Hosea. He told one of his prophets, Hosea, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea's wife was an adulterous woman. She cheated on her husband. And God is saying that we are like that woman. That spiritually, we are adulterous. We, we have cheated on God. And yet Jesus, is the husband of the church. And just like Hosea, God sends Jesus. Hosea is just a foreshadowing. God sends Jesus to show love for his wife again. Though they have been an adulterous people. Listen to Hosea. Then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. And so what does Hosea do? Verse 2, so I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Now that may not mean much to us, but in Hosea's days, that was a costly, costly price, particularly for an adulterous woman. But then look at Jesus. Jesus paid with his very life to purchase us, an adulterous people. This is how much he loves the church. Think about this. 
all we bring to our relationship with Jesus is our need, our guilt, and our unfaithfulness. And yet Jesus brings his faithfulness, his freedom, and a dress worth wearing, and a perfect future with him forever. And so if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, the world, the culture, do you know what they're saying about the church? It's lost its power. They're so disappointing. It's so dis- they're hypocritical, Jesus. And Jesus would say, I know. They can be that way at times. But I just can't let her go. I love her too much. I'm crazy about her. Filled with passion for her. You might say, I'm smitten with her. How God sees us, his church, as a bride. And so we're, when we begin dreaming about who we're to be and, and how we're supposed to live, the first type of thing we've got to incorporate into our understanding is God is passionately in love with us, his bride. And so let us live like it. Not as an adulterous bride, You know what's interesting is in our culture, even, in our society, there are things we all agree on about marriage, about loyalty and faithfulness and love and respect. And when those things are compromised or when those things are abandoned, we all agree that's not right. It shouldn't happen. And the same thing needs to get into our mindset as the church that when we are adulterous people with God, that should not be. Because God loves us. The second image is the temple in the New Testament, revealing the presence of God. It's in the Old and New Testament. Now, in the beginning, in Genesis, God's unhindered presence is with Adam and Eve. There's this great communion. There's this great intimacy. There's no hindrances. In fact, Genesis uh, says they were naked and unashamed. Naked before God and naked before each other and not ashamed. Perfect fellowship and presence and conversation. Now let's just think about that for a minute. Have you ever been thinking and processing life and people and relationships and you just kind of think, God, I wish you would just come and sit down right here and tell me what is going on. What are they thinking? What, how am I supposed to think? To really sit and talk with Jesus and hear answers. Unhindered. That's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. That's the way it was intended to be. God just shows up with Adam and said, man, how's it going, Adam? How's it going with all the animals in the garden? Got any of that giving you a hard time? How's your wife? Y'all doing good? Living in harmony? Of course you are. Everything's perfect. Haven't sinned yet. Just being able to pour out your heart and your life unhindered, naked, and not ashamed. We were created for an unhindered relationship in the presence of God. And the question we have to ask ourselves as a church is the culture seeing that unhindered relationship in our lives. I've enjoyed getting to know Moses a little bit more as I was studying this passage in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says this to God. God, I pray you show me your glory. Exodus 33, 18. 
children of God have been delivered. God has given them Ten Commandments. He's given them other things. And Moses, in this conversation with God, he says this, Exodus 33, 15, and 16. Then Moses said to him, verse 15, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. Then verse 16, he asked a great question. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me and me and my pe- on your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. Did you hear that? For your presence, God, among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. It's an interesting question. It's an interesting exchange with God in verse 16 when Moses asked God, what will distinguish me, God, from all the other people? Now, the men there would have gone, maybe circumcision, maybe the dietary laws, maybe the rules we're supposed to follow, maybe the ceremonies and feasts, maybe even the Ten Commandments, all these different things. But God said, that's not it. What is it? The distinguishing thing for us as a church is the presence of God. If God's not in it, nothing else matters. For the Jews, the presence of God was symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. Then God's presence moved to the tabernacle. Then that God's presence would be seen by, by a cloud during the day and fire by night. You could actually see God's presence. What he was doing. And then God's presence was, was solidified in the temple when Solomon dedicated it. In 1 Kings 18, it says that Solomon built the temple and the king, uh, the, the glory of God filled the temple. But again, Israel was unfaithful. And I just finished reading 1 and 2 Samuel in a commentary on it. And, and in there, there's a tragic scene that happens in chapter 4. The glory and presence of God is removed. In chapters 2 and 4 of 1 Samuel, read the sad story of Eli's two wayward sons, Phineas and Phoney. The Philistines defeat them, and the sons are killed, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant with them. And so the presence of God is gone. And upon hearing this terrible news, Eli falls back in his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. The wife of Eli's son, hearing that the ark was taken, gives premature birth to a son. As she's dying, she called the child Ichabod, which means the glory is departed from Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21. The glory of God has been removed. We know Herod rebuilds the temple, which almost takes 50 years to build. And when he builds it, he builds it with this extraordinary expectation that this is going to be the place that holds God's glory. And this is what Josephus said about the temple. The outward walls of the temple in those days were covered with so much gold, blinding with fiery splendor at sunrise. Now watch this. Jesus shows up on the scene. In the New Testament, Jesus says, You know the temple? I'm the temple. The power and glory of God is in me. You know the priesthood? I'm the priest. You know, remember the sacrifices? I'm the sacrifice. All the presence and glory of God is in me. John chapter 2, verses 19 and 21. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days, and I'll rise it up again. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking of the temple of his body. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. The glory and presence of God is in Jesus. Now think about it. When the people looked at the temple and the blazing glory that it had, and they looked at Jesus as Isaiah described a lowly man, not much to look at. There was some tension. There was some misunderstanding. There was some controversy. But it gets even more incredible because Jesus says this to his people. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. And after I'm gone, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to send my spirit. And you, the church, are going to be the temple to hold the power and glory of God. That's amazing. It's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, what Steve talked about last week, who, who the Corinthians were just using their bodies, these temples of God, in however fashion they wanted. And Paul says to them, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. God, his glory and his presence inhabits his people. God's presence is to be found in his people. In fact, it's the distinguishing mark of his people. Now, I know some of you are thinking, this can't be. I, I, I looked in the mirror this morning. But it's true. You are the beloved bride of Christ, and you are the temple of God holding the glory and power of God. That's where God is found in his people. And listen, real simple. God just wants people who want his presence. You don't have to be the most beautiful. You don't have to have the highest level of education. You don't have to have the most money. You just simply say, yes, Jesus, I am your temple. Fill me with your power and glory. The next metaphor is about the family revealing the people of God. There's an interesting scene that happens in Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in a room talking with his disciples, his friends, maybe some other people. And some people come to him and say, Jesus, there's people knocking at the door. And he says, who is it? It's, my mothers and it's your mothers and brothers. And then he says this really interesting response. Verse 33 of chapter 3, answering them, Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? Looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers... For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So it begs the question, what is the will of God? I'm glad you asked. John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus has this contrast in love, a radical thought about what love is. Remember what he says, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? So Jesus has this vision of what the family of God and how they're supposed to love one another. It's not a love that we love people who love us or even love people who like us. We're called to love people who don't love us back and who don't like us. Because that's what Jesus did for me. And that's what Jesus did for you. 
when I wasn't in love with Jesus, when I didn't even like Jesus, certainly didn't want Jesus to tell me what to do, he still loved me. And Jesus says, just as I have loved you, love one another. Our love is to love like Christ loves the church. And that's what the family of God, that's what the will of God is. And just because it's hard doesn't mean the church has to bail on it. That's what the world would tell you to do. The culture is telling us if it's hard, just bail out. It's all about you. Be happy. Listen to what one author said. Our culture has powerfully conditioned us to believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over connections we have with others in both our families and our churches. Basically, if you don't feel like it, don't do it. And Jesus says, I want an agape, sacrificial, loving group of people that's strikingly different than the world. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. The final metaphor is the body revealing the purpose of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God is about wanting to use his church to do something in the world, tangibly. God has chosen to use his church to physically work in the world. You are the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis, in the world's last and other essays, says this. God seems to be doing nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and bludgeringly what he can do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, could God do perfectly and quickly what he wanted to do in the world better than us? That's where you say, yes, Matthew. Of course he can. But he chooses to use us to be his hands and his feet and his eyes and his ears and his nose to display the wisdom of God in the world, to touch people. But so many are paralyzed, and so few people embrace that and respond to his command. I remember as a kid, I heard this, and it's always stuck in my head, and hopefully it'll stick in your head. God does not want my ability. He wants my availability. Will you dream with me just for a second? What do you think could happen? What could God do if the whole body of Christ responded immediately without hesitation to the commands of God. What beautiful story would the world see? Paraphrasing an offer, it says this, God touches the world when the world, when the church sees herself as Christ's body in the world. Listen to what one author said, the body of Christ, with her different messed up members and crippled in function, speaks the truth, proclaims good news, performs Jesus' actions, identifies with pain, builds community, shares and forgives. God wants to transform lives and instill hope. The Spirit becomes tangible when the deeds of the church through Christ's body are fulfilled. 
God wants the body to fulfill his purpose in the world. This morning I want to close with this. Sometimes, and maybe you feel like this too, sometimes I can relate. I resonate with Bonhoeffer's moment on the hill. I stand here and I look at the brokenness of our world, yet the powerful emptiness that our culture offers. And how it's pulling members away. And I look at myself and I look at you, our church here on Hilton Head. This big broken world out there. And I want to believe in my heart of hearts that this, this is greater than that. I love this quote from pastor and author Will Williman. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I don't know what your view is of the church. But as a believer, when you look in the mirror the next time, I pray you see the bride. I pray that you understand that you're the temple. That you're part of the family of God. And the body of Christ to be on display in the world. Because I am convinced, because of what God has done through Christ and by his spirit, that this is greater than that. Let me pray for us. God, may you use us to be the wisdom of you on display to the world. God, revive in our hearts an understanding of your passion towards us as your bride, your love, your unconditional, sacrificial love for us. Help us embrace that. Help us to know that as believers that we are the temple of God, that your power and glory given to us by your spirit resides in us. Help us to love one another well. And by this, all people will know that we're yours. Give us a desire, God. We pray to be your body, your hands, your feet, to make the Spirit of God tangible to the people in our lives. We trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.